Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. You'll notice that the text for the sermon this evening is verses 13 to 15, and that will be what I'm preaching, but I'm going to read beginning with verse 8 so that we can uh, get the context of, of these words. So I'll be reading um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15, and we'll be looking specifically at verses uh, 13 to 15. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Father, how we do pray for your blessing now on, on the preaching of the Word as we come to uh, the end of this series on salvation through childbearing, we come to the, the, the point where the, the application is driven home uh, for the home. And Lord, I am very aware as we come to a text like this, that this is so very different from the way in which uh, the world operates and what it thinks is right and good. Uh, so much so that uh, many, even within the church, consider these words to be uh, contrary to a, 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 a good view of morality. Um, so, Lord, we do pray that you would humble us, help us to receive this word, help us to see the, the glory of salvation in childbearing. And may it be, O Lord, that you would grant us the grace to be obedient to your word here. Uh, for, Lord, uh, we do see that your, your kingdom actually does advance through obedience to your word on this point. And this is what we long for more than anything else. Uh, may it be, O Lord, that you would advance your kingdom as we consider, uh, again, Lord, the weakness of your church and the darkness that is in this land. How we do pray, O Lord, that you would pour out your spirit, that you would grow your kingdom. And may it be that you would grant us submissive and humble hearts as we receive difficult words that yet are, are, are fitted by you and your wisdom to enable your kingdom to advance. For we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we uh, began this very short series on uh, salvation through childbearing by pointing in the beginning to all the ways in which childbearing is opposed. And we saw that there are very many ways in which that is the case. You think of things like abortion, low birth rates, which have its root in feminism and in the environmental movement. There are other things that could be said. But uh, the reality is, is that if you look at the influence of all these things with regard to childbearing, the conclusion that you'd have to uh, draw is that this culture, this world, this country is in fact 
in direct opposition uh, to childbearing. It is seen as a bad thing. It is seen as something that will even cause the world to end. Uh, the world will end if we have too many people. Overpopulation will be a problem. And um, you know, therefore, we need to be opposed to childbearing. And even uh, it is a good thing if women do not bear uh, children. All this, as we have seen, is completely contrary to nature. It's completely contrary to the natural disposition of women who have a, a natural uh, desire normally to uh, bear children, to have them, to be um, at, at home with them. Uh, this is contrary to that. It has led to great unhappiness for women. It's also led to purposelessness for men and really weakness uh, in men. There are problems today both with the way men and women act, but ultimately it is this, the, the same ideologies that produce this opposition to childbearing also produce weakness in, in men that is causing the destruction of the home. Uh, this is also contrary, not only just to nature, but also contrary to, to the commandment of God, who has commanded mankind to be fruitful and multiply. That is to say, the earth is more complete when it is filled with people. That is, in that sense, part of the earth's salvation, so to speak, is in uh, the bearing of children. And even beyond all these things, the point that's been made repeatedly in the last couple of weeks is this, that also this, these ideologies miss the fact that salvation has come through childbearing. It's, there's, there is a, a, an explanation according to nature, the commandment of God, as we'll see, even the fall. But also, there is an explanation with regard to redemption, that there is a redemptively uh, significant element to bearing children. And therefore, uh, therefore, uh, childbearing in itself is glorious. And as we've been seeing, this is what we celebrate in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw this morning, that Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. And in this birth, God became man for the sake of the salvation of his people. We saw how this was clearly God, uh, God's great act of condescending love and grace to his people, for which he is worthy of all praise and glory. Uh, and we saw how all throughout the scriptures, uh, there is this theme that, that is recurring, that always is pointing to this great birth, that the first gospel promise, all the miraculous births of the Old Testament, the, the, uh, the giving birth of Zion and her restoration from exile, all these things are pointing to this great element of salvation through childbearing. Now, in some ways, all of the sermons that have been preached to this point could be considered an exposition just on one of the last phrases of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. All the other sermons are basically an, an explication of what that, that phrase means. The, the scriptures speak about what it means for salvation to come through childbearing all the way throughout. From Genesis even to Revelation, we have seen the way in which uh, salvation through childbearing becomes a significant theme in the scriptures. But what's... Uh, more significant to understand about 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, and particularly verse 15, is that what Paul is saying is not only is this a great theme that we see in the history of redemption, that is to say that God has caused redemption to happen through childbearing, but what Paul is actually saying is that as we think about the glory of salvation through childbearing, that this has an implication for the way in which Christians conduct themselves within the home. That actually the way in which men and women relate to one another is to be influenced and governed by the way in which God has in fact 
uh, saved his people from their sins. This is to say, if God has granted salvation by having women give birth, a woman give birth, that this actually tells us something about the, the relationship that a, a woman has to a man and the relationship that a woman has to her family. That is to say, this is not just in the realm of, uh, of an understanding of redemptive history, but it's also, uh, Paul is saying here, has implications for the way in which we understand the theology of the Christian home. Uh, that is to say then, as we think about uh, childbearing itself being under uh, attack today, Women are, are in, in the world today not to be submissive to their husbands or to be considered uh, perfectly equal in this regard with regard to submission. And yet, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that when you look at, and if you look at verses 13 to 15, the, the totality of the message is this. If you look at creation, verse 13, the fall, verse 14, and redemption, verse 15, all of those things, all of them, Teach something about the way in which a woman is to relate to her husband and the way in which she is to relate to her family. And all of them are teaching the same thing. Namely, that a woman is to be in subjection to her husband and is to be focused on the work of childbearing. Creation teaches that, the fall teaches it, and redemption teaches it. And so we're going to look at, uh, at those uh, three headings. That'll be the way in which we break up this text. So we'll look at creation in verse 13, we'll look at the fall in verse 14, and then we'll look at uh, redemption in verse 15 and show how each of these things relate to uh, the way in which a, a, a woman is to relate to man within the home. Uh, now, I realize today as I'm, I'm preaching this particular, these particular verses that this is a very difficult message to receive. I'm very aware that this could be one of the, the it's certainly one of the more controversial things or one of the more offensive things that could be said. I will remind you of the quote from Clement of Alexandria that I quoted at the, at the beginning, the very first sermon on this series. He said uh, in the third century, he says, when lies have been accepted for some time, the truth always astounds with an air of novelty. And that is the way that the teachings with regard to the relationship between men and women are uh, today. It does astound with an air of novelty. However, brothers and sisters, we must believe that the word of God is good and right and that every part of it is to be obeyed and that, and even further, that every part of it is necessary. One of the implications, as we will see, is that the kingdom of God is advanced when this is the view of the home that is maintained within the church. So what is at stake? Uh, part of, of what we could say is at stake is the advance of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will advance when there is obedience with regard to these particular truths. To even say it from a different way, um, uh, feminism has gained so much ground that many of the basic truths of the scriptures are uh, immediately thought of to be wrong. But this is a, a tool of Satan that he has used in order to deceive people, uh, in order to uh, prevent them from obedience to God. The very fact that this is something that has been pushed so hard in the world for, in our, our country for the last century and a half, is, is evidence of the significance of the, the topic itself. If it were something that were not that important, then the opposition to the scriptures would not be so fierce. And yet it has been fierce. It's been a sustained attack for more than a century with regard to the teachings of the way in which uh, men and women are to relate to one another. And so, I just give you the exhortation, knowing that it's difficult, be humble, receive the difficult word, 
Do not be deceived by the devil, but rather be like Mary, who in subjection to God declared, as we read this morning, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your will. Um, so we'll look at these, this text under the, the three headings, creation, and then the fall, and then redemption. So first, with regard to creation, it's important to, to note that verse 13 uh, is where the Apostle Paul speaks about creation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now notice that verses 13 through 15 are really given as the grounds for what he said before. So the, verse 13 begins with the word for, and this is the reason why we read the, the entire context. You'll note that in the context, what Paul is speaking about in the immediate context is about the reason why women are to be silent within the church, why they're to be submissive to their husbands, and why they are not given authority to teach uh, or uh, to have authority over man within the church. Now, um, one of the things that we see is, is that Paul then will ground the reason why uh, women cannot do those things in, again, creation, fall, and redemption. But then also, the very fact that he, en that he ends with a description of women being, uh, her role being geared towards childbearing means that this has an implication for the home as well. That is to say then, uh, what Paul is showing here is that there is to be a mirroring of the church and the home with regard to the principles of male headship. That the, the principles that govern men being head within the church are the same principles that govern men being, having the headship within the home. So, um, so a, a man is to be the head of his household and also there are to be men who have been called who are to be heads within the church. There is a, a correspondence between these two things. Now, one of the a question that's very common today that's asked is why is it that women are not permitted to exercise authority and leadership in the church by having office? And here the answer is given. Why, why is that the case? Because man was made first, uh, therefore he has the headship. Woman sinned first, therefore it is better for a man to be the head. And the gospel promised uh, was promised through childbearing, therefore women's role in advancing God's kingdom is centered on the home. Uh, now sometimes, sometimes the, the rebuttal to uh, texts like 1 Timothy 2 is that, you know, uh, this is merely cultural. It, these are arguments that no longer apply to us in the 21st century. We, we don't have a world like Paul did. He was living in a patriarchal society and, and we don't live in that world anymore. Now, it's 100% true. We do not live in a patriarchal society anymore, but it does not mean that this is not what the scriptures do in fact teach. Um, against this though, notice Paul grounds, it's not just that he grounds these principles in one thing that is abiding. He grounds it in three three very significant things. Creation surely still matters. Creation surely is not um, a, a, something that is merely cultural. The fall still affects everybody. Therefore, if it's grounded in the fall, surely, surely that still applies to us. And redemption, surely no Christian needs to be uh, persuaded that if something pertains to redemption, then it, that it has an abiding significance beyond the first century. We, we surely believe in the same Savior as the Apostle Paul does. And so notice then that those are the three things that Paul grounds these principles in. Why is it that a woman is to be in subjection within the church and then by implication also within the home to her husband and in the church to pastors and the session? The answer is given. The answer is given because Adam was made first, because Eve was the one who was deceived, and because salvation comes through childbearing. Now, with regard to this first one, Creation. What, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that creation does in fact teach 
that these things are so. And notice that the, the, the thing that Adam that, that uh, Paul is really pointing to is the fact that Adam was formed first. So the priority of Adam's being formed first uh, shows that he has the headship, that he has the authority within the relationship. And the implication that, that Paul is drawing is that um, this becomes normative for all marriage relationships. This, this, the fact that Adam was made first becomes the grounds for uh, Adam having the headship uh, within the marriage relationship. Now, there are a number of ways in which this comes out in the text of Genesis, a number of significant things about, uh, uh, about the way in which Adam's creation is described that show that he is, he, does, he is, in fact, the head of his wife, Eve. Now, as I mentioned, uh, the very first and most basic thing is that Adam was made first, and, this, uh, and his creation is clearly in the image of God. Uh, we see this in the first part of uh, Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. Uh, particularly verse 7 recounts the, the, the creation of, uh, of uh, uh, Adam. Uh, Eve was then made second, and as you see from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 and following, Eve was made second, and she was formed to be like Adam. So the problem that God had identified was that Adam was alone, and he did not have a helper that was suitable to him. And so God actually formed Eve to be like Adam. So even, even not just by the mere order, but the, but the reason for the creation of women itself shows the priority of Adam with regard to headship. God gave Adam a particular task, and then Eve was made in accordance with Adam. And so in this way, um, woman is clearly made in the image of God, and yet she is made in the image of God through being created like man. So this, to say this another way, this is the point that, that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, where he says, man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So man is made in the image of God and woman is the glory of man. Now what Paul is not saying is, he's not saying that this means that woman is not made in the image of God. This is very clear from Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, where male and female are both made in the image of God. And so in that sense, there is an equality. But as you, you look at Genesis chapter 2 and you were to ask, uh, how is woman made in the image of God? The answer is that man was made in the image of God first, and woman is, the Im is made in the image of God because woman was made like man. And woman was made like man in order to be his helper. And so this is what the Apostle Paul is, is getting at. Woman and man are both made in the image of God, and yet uh, Adam was in fact made first, and woman therefore is the glory of man. She is, was made like him and is a reflection of his glory. And this does, in fact, tell you something about the relationship between, uh, between woman and man uh, within the marriage relationship. And this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, another way in which Adam's being made first shows his headship is that Adam was made um, and then was given the covenant of works before Eve was made. So Adam is made, he's placed in the garden, he's told to work and keep it, God makes the covenant of works with him, and Eve actually has not yet been made yet. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, God uh, makes the covenant of works with Adam. He, he commands him not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death, and he places him in the garden with the tree of life. And then it's only after that that God makes Eve. What this means is then is that in order for Eve to understand what God had commanded, 
Adam had, in fact, to teach it to her. She, she was not around to hear the words of God. In this way, Adam, you could say, was Eve's prophet, priest, and king. He was the one that had authority over her. He was the one who communicated to her God's word. And he is the one that was the mediator of the covenant with regard to her. Uh, he was the prophet, the priest, uh, and the king. And in that sense, had the superiority as far as uh, headship goes. Uh, not only that, but thirdly, uh, Adam's priority over Eve with regard to headship is seen in the fact that when he was made in the garden, the way in which Eve is described is being made as his helper. So, so Adam was given a particular task, role within the garden that God had already given. Uh, he is to, to, to work the garden. And then Eve was made in order to help Adam with the task that he himself was given. Now, uh, many feminist interpreters and even, uh, I should say, uh, most modern commentators um, uh, will argue that uh, God is also called helper with regard to his people. Uh, therefore, this has nothing to do with subordination insofar as God is not subordinate to us. Um, the, the very term helper does not prove, uh, in fact, that woman is uh, subordinate to her husband. However, this, this does, uh, really does avoid the plain meaning of the text um, insofar as um, God is not created or is not ever in a position where his main function is defined as being our helper. He's not first and foremost about the task that man has. Uh, God's ultimate end is his own glory. And we are always to serve him. Our purpose is to serve him. Our, our ultimate purpose has reference to God. But in some sense, you could say that, that, that woman's purpose has reference to man. Because woman was made to be the helper of man. A woman, uh, Adam, was alone. God said, it's not good for man to be alone. And then God said, I will make him a helper that is suitable to him. I will make him a helper who will be able, in fact, uh, to help him. This is again something that the Apostle Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, when he says that man uh, the, was not made from woman, but woman from man. So then they're the same thing, the priority of, of creation. Uh, but then also, man was not created for woman, but woman for man. So woman's purpose is seen by the very fact that in the beginning, Eve was created for the benefit of Adam. A woman was made for man. That is, she was created to be his helper. And this is, this is the way that the Apostle Paul is interpreting that statement with regard to uh, 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 Eve being the helper of Adam. And it clearly shows a, a, a subordinate position uh, with regard to authority, that Eve is, in fact, uh, subordinate to her husband. Now, again, this is not to say that, that women, are not, uh, women are not made in the image of God. They are, of course, made in the image of God as first as uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 teaches. Uh, both men and women, husbands and wife, are heirs of the kingdom of God, uh, heirs of the inheritance of grace, as the, the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 3. Uh, and yet, uh, even though we affirm equality in that sense, there is still a very important sense in which creation does teach that a woman is to be subject to her husband. A woman is, is, is in this sense, uh, subordinate uh, to him. And even further, a woman is called to be the helper of man. Uh, woman, in this sense, was made uh, for man. And this is the reason why 
women are not to exercise authority over men within the church. And it's also the reason why a wife is to be subordinate to her husband. Now, again, the subordinate here it does not mean like lesser in value or something like that, but it does mean in subjection to as regard to authority. Now, one of the implications of this is that if you're married and you are, are a married woman, you, you ought to think primarily about, as you think about the relationship you have to your husband and your calling, how, how can I best serve him and love him? One of the things you need to think about is how can you, to, to ask the question, how can you help your husband perform the task that has been given to him to the best of his ability? How, how can you come alongside him and help him? Um, in, the, in the egalitarian society that we live in, um, what is prized is both a husband and a wife having uh, careers and ambitions that are completely separate and parallel. And neither is to encroach on the actions of the other. But in the scriptures, the, the relationship is rather that there is a path that has been given to the man. And the first calling of a wife is actually to help him in his calling. It doesn't, this doesn't mean that there can be no situation where a woman should ever work or anything like that. But it does mean that the first bent of a wife ought to be, how can I help my husband? How can I help him in the calling that has been given to him? Uh, now, this is a, a very difficult thing to think through how to do this in today's world. If you uh, read books about biblical headship, at least some of them will usually bring in some kind of discussion about the Industrial Revolution and speak about how before the days of the Industrial Revolution, there was more of a, a uh, the work of a man was centered more on the home and therefore it was easier for a woman to be the helper of man. It was actually quite natural uh, because man was working with regard to the home and uh, and it would be natural then for her work to correspond and be, and be helpful. And then uh, books will, will speak about how after the Industrial Revolution, work uh, was sort of severed from the home and man's work is now uh, outside the home and therefore it's, it's less natural for a woman to be able to help her husband with regard to, uh, uh, with, with regard to his uh, callings. And then with the rise of feminism, of course, uh, women are told they, they, they also ought to seek work outside the home and therefore you have a complete then bifurcation of, of the work of men and women. So the question is then is, what does it actually look like in today's world to be a helper to your husband if you are, if you are a wife, if you are married? Now, um, certainly you could say that in the circumstances it's more difficult. However, it is not impossible. It is not impossible for a woman to be a great help and service uh, to her husband. I was actually reading of an example of this in a news article about a, a politician, a governor, and he relies very heavily on the help of his wife. She is described as his closest advisor. Uh, she is involved in every hiring decision. She screens those who are interviewed, uh, who are interviewed and she even gives many interviews uh, herself. Uh, she is involved in all of the, the email correspondences, calendar invites, all these things are things that she's involved in. And what that's a picture of is it's a picture of a wife who has gotten very involved uh, in the work of her husband and is trying her best to see him succeed. And this is exactly really what, what the, the Bible is describing as it describes a wife as a helper. And I, I'll just say too, um, same thing is true with, with Erica, my own wife. Um, she does a great job of helping me in the work of the ministry. And I can, I can bear witness to that. There are many things that are done in this church that would not happen with regard to ministry that 
would not happen unless she were helping me. And, and I would not be able to do them on my own. Um, these are just some examples, two examples where you would initially think there may be less for a wife to do. It may be more difficult for a wife to get involved in the work of her husband. And yet, um, you know, politician, as high as being a governor of a state, and then also being a pastor's wife. Uh, and yet, um, there's at least two examples of when, uh, where, there, where, there, where there are wives who have been helpers to their husbands. And I'll just say as well, uh, one of the things that this also means is that husbands, you ought to look for ways to share your work with your wives. Think about the gifting that your wife has and see how is it that I can bring my wife in such that then the, the husband and father's work and his advancement and progress becomes not just his own, his own uh, goals and ambitions, but it actually becomes the goals and ambitions of the entire family, that the entire family is behind seeing dad succeed. That, that is a good biblical picture of the home. And it actually, brothers and sisters, if Christians live like this and Christian families are like this, it gives even just practically an enormous competitive advantage for Christians within the workplace. Christians who have wives that are able to help them like this have an enormous advantage over people who are married who have wives that are living completely separate lives. Just, there's going to be an enormous difference with regard to that. Uh, in, in Christianity, we are called to lay down our lives for others. And brothers and sisters, uh, this is the way in which a woman is called to lay down her life for her husband. Now, if you are unmarried, um, this, this way of thinking also informs the kind of service that should be given within the church. So if, particularly if you're a woman within the church, how can you be a helper of the ministries that the church has? How can you, you humbly come alongside and help and, uh, with regard to the ministries that the church has? If you're, if you're a man, how can you, um, how can, how can you uh, stir up in your heart uh, the gifts of leadership to lead particular ministries within the church? These are, are questions that are important to ask because remember, the Apostle Paul is saying, these principles apply both to the church and to the family. There's a, there's a mirroring between these two things. And this is the way in which the family succeeds. It's also the way in which the church advances. Now, if, uh, if that was not um, different enough from the way in which the world thinks, verse 14 is even more so. The second thing that the Apostle Paul says is that Eve was the one who was deceived. Notice Eve sinned first. But with regard to even, even here, it's not the priority of, of her sinning in the sense that she is the one that sinned first, that, that the Apostle Paul highlights. He actually says, Adam was not deceived. The woman being deceived fell into transgression. So there is a, a difference with regard to um, the way in which the first sin happened. Eve sinned first, but also her sin was of the nature of deception. And Adam's sin, by implication, was of a different kind of nature. And this is important, as the Apostle Paul is saying, with regard to the relationship between man and woman. Surely, uh, if there was any verse in the Bible that would uh, give Paul, make Paul worthy of the name misogynist today, based on today's standards, it would be this one. However, this is what the Word of God teaches. And it is, in fact, teaching perfectly the nature of man and woman, 
and it offers hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you once again, consider the love of your Savior and do not stumble at this word. Uh, what Paul is not saying, he is not saying that the responsibility for, e for falling falls primarily on Eve. That's, that's not true. The responsibility always falls on Adam because of his headship. You, you never read in the scriptures that you fall in Eve, even though she sinned first and was deceived by Satan. You never read that. It's always that you fell in Adam. Now, very often today, it's very common to point that out, that there is a special relationship that that fall has with regard to Adam. It's very, very unpopular to say the next part, which is what Eve's part in it was and the way in which that teaches you something about woman's nature as a whole. And so while this text is not saying, not saying that Eve sinned worse, in many ways, Adam sinned worse. It's not saying that the primary responsibility falls to Eve, but what it is saying is that Eve was deceived. And that deception, as the Apostle Paul is saying, teaches us something about woman's nature. And what, what it teaches about women's nature is that a woman is more likely to be deceived than a man. A woman is more likely to be deceived than a man. And if a woman is more likely to be deceived than a man, then a woman ought not to have headship in the church. She also ought not to have headship within the family. Now, I know that that is uh, very difficult to, to uh, think about, but it is, in fact, what the scriptures are teaching, and it is significant. It is a significant point. Um, when women uh, seek office within the church, they are exposing the entire church to error. And when a woman seeks to usurp her husband's authority within the home, she is exposing her entire family to error. And the reason for this is because she is more prone to deception. Now, a common uh, complementary interpretation with regard to this, a more modern one, uh, is that Satan was able to deceive Eve because um, in telling her she needs to eat of, the, of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that she was subverting the principle of headship. So the idea is that there's nothing, there's nothing inherent about the nature of man or woman. It's just that he asked her rather than him. Uh, but the question then, the next question that needs to be asked is, why did Satan do that? Why did he think that he would be more successful? Why is it that subverting the principle of headship, now with 100% that's true, if the principle of headship is subverted, there is a greater tendency towards error. But why is it the case that subverting the principle of headship with regard to temptation is going to lead to greater sin and to sins more often? The answer is because a woman is more likely to be deceived. Now, there are all kinds of ways in which, uh, in which this can be shown to be the case. Uh, the Apostle Paul here uses the fall itself. But this is actually something that is, uh, something that is, the reason for it is actually something that is quite commonly understood with regard to the nature of, of women themselves. And that is, is that women are by nature more emotional than men. Now, this is not in and of itself a bad thing. Uh, part of the great strengths of women are, the are their emotions, particularly with regard to uh, the care of a, uh, and compassion that women show. And you think of, of uh, it's even proverbial uh, when people talk about the love of a mother, and it's a, a special thing. However, because of women's constitution with regard to her emotions, she is also going to be more prone to being deceived. Uh, uh, the way deception typically works is a play upon emotions to get someone to, to do something that is contrary to reason. 
Men are by nature more rational and less emotional. Therefore, if it comes to a situation where a leader must make a decision where the requirement is, and this is often the case with leadership, where the requirement is setting aside emotions and making a decision that is based on what is right, that God has made the man to be constituted in such a way that he is more able to make those kinds of decisions. In that sense, a man is less likely to be deceived. Now, uh, with regard to this, uh, again, um, what is the nature then of, of Adam's sin? Again, I mentioned in some ways it's even worse. Um, Eve was deceived. She was deceived by Satan. And that's bad. It teaches you something about women, all those things. Uh, Adam, Adam knew his wife was wrong and yet still went along with her is the implication of the text. Adam was not deceived. She was deceived. And here you have two examples of the, of the way in which sin often works within the heart. One for women, one for men. Women are prone to being deceived. Men are prone to being weak and cowardly and being unable to make a decision in accordance with the headship that they've been granted. Adam's sin was this. This is the way that, that God speaks to him in Genesis chapter 3. Because you listened to the voice of your wife, you listened to the voice of your wife and you knew she was wrong is the implication. That's the reason why all of these things are coming upon the entire world. And so what a man is required to do, what, what a man is always going to be tempted to do is to abdicate with regard to his leadership. But even then, both of the ways in which they sin, both of the ways in which men and women have sinned, which Adam and Eve sinned, both of them actually teach the need for strong male headship. Both of them teach that. A man will fall into sin if he does not stand firmly as a good, strong leader within the home. And a woman will fall if she tries to grab the headship because she will be led to deception. Uh, that is the way in which the scriptures uh, speak. Now, this does not mean that every woman is more likely to be deceived than every man. It does not even mean that a woman ought to listen to her husband in every single instance. Uh, if a woman, for instance, is married to an unbeliever, then he is clearly deceived about first principles and she is not. And she will be able to make from that position a wiser set of decisions on a number of points than he will be able to. And yet, even here, one of the things that will show a woman's godliness in distinction from her husband is that she will recognize in her own nature a propensity towards deception, which will cause her to seek to be under the headship of others. That is going to be a, a normal disposition of a Christian woman. She will see the need to be sitting under good leadership in the home and in the church. And if and if in the home she does not have it, she will all the more seek it within the church under the teaching of the word of God. Now, the, the other implication for this is that uh, uh, this is something that we, we, we would want for our, for our women within the church at every stage of life. Daughters being submissive to their fathers until he hands over his headship to a husband. And at all times, women being submissive within the church to authority. And all this for the sake of the protection of women and for their good. So creation teaches it. The fall teaches it. The different relationships, relationships between men and women. And to this point, the Apostle Paul has been largely negative. So there are, are um, negative things with regard to women and that show that they are to be uh, under man with regard to headship. But he ends with something that is, in fact, glorious. And this is the thing that we've been pointing to all throughout this sermon series. And that is, it's not just that creation teaches that women are to be subordinate to man or the fall that teaches it, but also 
God has yet gift, given to, to women a glorious part within the work of redemption. And it is this thing that positively ought to give women great encouragement about the role that they themselves have been given. And the Apostle Paul here again is working through the first parts of Genesis. He says with regard to uh, creation in Genesis, man was made first. With regard to the fall, Eve was deceived, not Adam. But with regard to that first promise, as we mentioned, salvation comes through childbearing. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that this is significant, not just in terms of a, a one-time act of salvation, the virgin birth, but this is something that informs the way, the way that women are to think about their relationship to men in every age and generation. The point that Paul is making is something like that when a woman is married and commits herself to having children within the home and focusing on raising those children well for the Lord, that there is actually a kind of participation in the advancement of the kingdom of God, a participation in the acts of redemption that God has historically given uh, through the virgin birth and through all these other promises of the scriptures. Uh, there's, there's something of a correspondence that a, a, a godly mother has with Mary and with Sarah and with Elizabeth and with Hannah and with Rebecca. That, that their example of godliness becomes the, the prototype, so to speak, for women everywhere. And that, in fact, uh, the kingdom of God advances through these means. That just as redemption has come, salvation has come through childbearing, so too there is a sense in which redemption continues to be pushed forward through childbearing. And that particularly, as the Apostle Paul says, the woman's relationship to childbearing. We noted in Genesis 3.15, the promise is given to the seed of the woman, not to the seed of both, not to the seed of man, but to the seed of the woman. There's a special relationship that the woman bears with regard to this promise and the bearing of children. And it does inform what the Apostle Paul is saying, her role within the family. She is to be focused on this particular thing. This is the great task that, that God has in fact given to a woman. So you think about the way in which Malachi 2, what does God, what is he looking for in a marriage? He is looking for godly offspring. Uh, just as the kingdom of God comes through the promise of childbearing, so too now it is advanced through the same. And brothers and sisters, another reason for giving all these sermons and saying all these things is because this is one of the great areas in which the church is failing today. It's one of the great areas in which the church is failing today. Christians are having fewer children. Those who have children are yet still uh, acting in a way where they are not prioritizing first and foremost the raising of their children in a godly way. The, the Christian home, the priority of the Christian home has in fact been abandoned. I, I've mentioned uh, months ago that there was a study in the Southern Baptist Convention, not a liberal denomination, uh, by in terms of the, the grand scheme of denominations. They would certainly be on the right if you... If you listed all the denominations and drew a center line, they would be far to the right. Uh, but 90% of Southern Baptist children, 90% when they go to college, they do not continue going to church. 90%. And so even with regard to um, having children, what, what the Apostle Paul is not saying is, is it's just an automatic thing that the kingdom of God is going to advance. It's not even saying, he's not saying that women are saved because they give birth to children. Notice even at the end of the text, she will be saved in childbearing if they, both men and women, continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. There is a godliness element to it. It is not an automatic thing. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that when, what a woman's role is, is to 
is to be focused on the home, bearing children, and to be seeking to make her first priority in life the raising of those children in a godly way. Everything should be given up for that end. There is no ambition that should, should supersede it. Everything. Uh, very often, it is, it is thought, you know, we can, um, uh, uh, as you think about what could be done for the kingdom of God, and very often people think about the, the more uh, dramatic services to the kingdom of God, and, and those, are, of course, are great. Uh, we, we need to be praying for things like more missionaries. Um, and we, we want, it would, be, it would be a wonderful thing if God would raise up missionaries from this church, and they would, they would go and they would preach the gospel. Most people will not have that calling. And if, if you want to know what is it that I can do practically to advance the kingdom of God, to be a part of that work, the answer is, if you are married, it is seek to raise a godly family. That is the greatest thing you can do. If the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is diligent with regard to evangelism, and, it is, and it's always doing outreach, and yet it abandons and neglects its children, the church will fall. The, the God will abandon that church, and we will not be able to stand. There must be, there must be a focus and an emphasis on raising godly children. You think about when the Israelites were enslaved in Exodus chapter 1, how was it that they got the upper hand of the Egyptians? They came down as 70, and the Egyptians worshipped death. Everything about the Egyptian culture was about death. But the but the Israelites multiplied. It was through the multiplication of children that they went down into the darkness of the land of death. And in a period of generations, they were able to outnumber the Egyptians such that, such that the Egyptians feared them. And brothers and sisters, as we think about the, where we are in today's world, we are living in a land that is very dark. And this country, the darkness, Satan is coming for our children specifically. We must make the raising of our children the very first priority with regard to the advance of the kingdom of God. This is the thing that Satan fears. If there is a focus on the family within the Christian church, there will be an advance of the kingdom of God. There will be one. And we will, in fact, see in our day the, 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 the darkness that is all around us push back. And so, as we think about all these things then, the traditional view of the way in which a woman relates to her husband, the way in which the home is to be prioritized, uh, what the scriptures teach with regard to these things is this, creation, fall, redemption. All of them teach the same thing, the same principle. Namely, that a, a woman is to be in subjection to her husband and that she is to help with the advancement of the kingdom of God uh, through childbearing. Of course, not, that's not the calling of every single woman, but this is generally the way in which God sees fit to bring about the advancement of his kingdom. And even if, even if you are in a situation where you cannot bear children or anything, um, this is still to be the focus, the strength of families within the church, the strength of families, maybe even generations down, your grandchildren, that is to be the great focus. Uh, this is the way in which God does advance uh, his kingdom. And again, we ought to pray for things like the raising up of missionaries. But the, what is it that you can do? The answer is you can lay down your life for the sake of the good of your children and show them, teach them the ways of godliness Prioritize that above everything else. And may it be that God would grant us to see 
our children's children, the blessing that is granted to the man who fears the Lord, not just our children's children existing, but our children's children's children, all fearing the Lord and teaching others to do the same. Uh, this is the hope for the kingdom of God. May it be that God would grant it, that we would see it in our day. Let's pray. Oh, Father, uh, Lord, uh, we, we know that these are, these are difficult words to receive. We do pray that you would grant the, the grace for them to be received well. And Lord, we do pray that you would, contrary to the teachings of the world, that you would place in our hearts and in our minds the glory, the importance of the family uh, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may it be that we be focused on the advancement of your kingdom in this way above everything else, not to the neglect of evangelism, evangelism or anything else, but may it be, Lord, that we would yet focus on it, that it would be our, our first priority in this re respect with regard to how we see uh, our calling in life. And Lord, we, we do pray that, uh, that there would be submission to your word on this front and that you would bless your, your church with growth and grace and even in growth and numbers as you cause us to be fruitful and to multiply. For we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place, uh, through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name.